10,000 feet up, breaking all the lights on the doors. And I ain't seen no ceilings. We came in through the top floor. Three oars rip right round your jugular. Three oars rip right round You're listening to Feminist Killjoys, PhD, and our feminism, pop culture, and politics, as discussed by two professional killjoys. I'm Rachel. And I'm Melody. And today we'll be discussing more about yoga, which we've done before, but specifically uh, via an interview with David from Minneapolis's Your Yoga, and specifically uh, talking about uh, David's involvement teaching yoga to police officers. So we'll have a lot to say about that. But first, Melody, where can our listeners find us on the internet? In select places such as <laughs> iTunes, where you can leave us a review. Um, you could also find us on your favorite podcast apps. Uh, you can follow, except for Stitcher, I guess. Sorry about that. Yeah, I don't understand why that is, but okay. Above my pay grade. Yeah. Uh, you can follow <laughs> us on Instagram. Uh, we have a Facebook page where you can like us, but then we also have a community called... Feminist Killjoys Community, WTF Power. Search WTF Power, because that's probably less results than Feminist Killjoys. Where else? Twitter. Uh, where we've been reposting some things from the Women's March, and I'll talk to you about that in a second. We have a mixtape on Spotify, which Rachel updates often with our outro music and other things. And if you have extra money and want to support feminist media laborers, you can donate to us on our website. Just click on the birdie, or you can uh, do micro-monthly donations via Patreon. Just search for us there. And then as always, you can email us, which many people do, at fkj.phd at gmail.com. Rachel, yeah. how are you? I'm good, but I just want to go back to our social meds for a sec. Uh, oh, yeah. okay. We did, last week, I was like, tag us in your March photos. And a bunch of people did that. And so thank you so much for all of those of you who did that because our Instagram page is beautiful and full of FKJs and WTFs uh, doing their thing. And it's really awesome. So thanks for doing that. Um, And also, yeah, I just want to second that folks do email us and we really like the emails. Melody usually checks it and then forwards it to me because I don't go in that email as often, but it's been great to communicate with some of you. So thanks for that. But anyway, speaking of those marches, uh, that's sort of been like the tenor of the weekend, right? Uh, marches mm-hmm. everywhere. Uh, so I didn't go to Friday, even though uh, the Friday stuff in Boston, even though I think sort of politically that's what I was more aligned with. Um, but I had just uh, gotten back from this campus interview, which went well. I'm not supposed to talk publicly about campus interviews, so I'll just stop there. But I got back. I was tired and I was practicing activist self-care and being like, I'm just going to go to one of the marches this weekend. Um, I will also say that it was sort of a bummer because I think the, at least in Boston, the organizing around Friday's events were not nearly as good. Like I had to like search on social media to find out what was happening. And that's partly just because I'm not tapped into the right activist communities here probably, but that I think sort of means that they should have tried to do a better job with outreach maybe. So they just weren't super well organized on Friday. Uh, And, you know, for better or worse, the Women's March took a lot of energy from, I think, the stuff that was happening on Friday. So Friday, I I really just had a very sort of somber day. I did watch the inauguration. I I keep sort of fluctuating between, like, 
you know, life has been bad for marginalized people, no matter the can't like the cabinet, the presidential cabinet, like capitalism is always already harming people like this, this couldn't possibly be so much worse. And then to just like sobbing in fear and terror about the the specificity of this particular presidency. So, you know, I, I didn't wake up with the kind of doom that I think some people did. But then when I was watching, I was like crying because it's just, it's just terrifying. So anyway, uh, that was that. But the Saturday March was, and we can get into this more, but uh, bananas number of people, like wild numbers of people, as everybody knows, every March in every city was just so, so many people, which was awesome. But it also meant that it was one of like the crappiest marches I've been to because we literally didn't move. (laughs) We like shuffled. So there wasn't like, it was, we were just in this mass of people and like, they didn't kind of know what to do with us. So it really wasn't a march as much of a bunch of people standing around with signs, which was cool. Um, but it also meant like we couldn't hear the speakers and it took like two hours to get there on public transit when it normally takes 25 minutes because the trains were just so crowded. So it was, it was cool, but it was also like, like the least fun march I've been to in terms of like taking the streets and, I was talking about my favorite like black block tactic of like when they stop the march, they just stop and don't let people go. And then they like sprint and they run when they're like shouting something. And there was no way that that would have happened because it was just so crowded. So anyway, but that was sort of my experience of the past couple of days. What about you? I also uh, attended a march, but I attended Friday instead of Saturday. And Mm -hmm. I attended, you know, echoing a lot of things that you just said, Rachel, but also one of my students is starting to work as an intern for the NAACP. And one Mm -hmm. thing they wanted was some live tweeting out of the march, the marches. Um, And so uh, the student and I uh, went down on Friday. And so I got to kind of coach him through live tweeting uh, an event. And that's awesome, Mel. That's cool. Yeah, it was really cool. And I mean, I think I was talking to some activist friends last night and For those of us who have gone to many marches throughout our years, marches can get kind of boring or like predictable. Um, Mm -hmm. And I don't think they're really for people like us who are already, you know, plugged in and doing the work on the ground Mm -hmm. on the daily. But doing something like with my student was just like a new way to see the march. And the framework was cool. And probably one of my favorite moments from the march was I had a like handmade sign on my jacket that said I was media and that I was an advisor working with the NAACP. Just because you have to do that to signify your movements. And, you know, if I'm not participating in a chant, you know, it it explains myself. But this older gentleman came up to me um, who is white, which matters, and, uh, you know, noticed the NAACP on my jacket and started talking to me about the NAACP. And then he, like, shows me his jacket and he has a safety pin, but he has an original snick button. Oh, Wow. I was that's like, is, rad. is that original? And he said, of course it is. And I was like, oh my wow. God, that's amazing. Uh, that's so cool. Yeah. Um, pause. I just want to take a moment since we want this podcast to be accessible for those of you, teaching moment, for those of you who don't know what SNCC is. So Student Nonviolent Coordinating Committee, a uh, civil rights organization from the 60s. So uh, white dude allyship, like, like generations ago. So pretty cool. 
Yes. And so the so the march was fine. I think I would echo a lot of the stuff that you were saying, Rachel, actually. Um, it was very hard to actually find anything on Twitter beyond what I knew my student was doing. The, mm-hmm. the hashtags were not established very well. And the one mm-hmm. that they wanted people to use resist from day one was a national hashtag. And mm-hmm. so it was very hard to kind of get an overview of what was going on at the march locally because mm-hmm. of the confusing use of hashtags, but also it might not have been a very like Twitter friendly or Twitter heavy group. Um, right. But in terms of your reflecting your politics more, you would have enjoyed this march because it was much more focused, at least here in Minneapolis, on immigration rights. Um, cool. The people leading our section of the march uh, were speaking in both Spanish and English And so it was just really, you know, a really cool thing to see. And then we ended up hooking up with another splinter march that was more about Native American rights and no dapple and included a black block section. And they always bring the party. And it was just I I saw like just I saw some pictures from Minneapolis of like they were like burning Trump like effigies like they were like there were fires in the middle of the street like burning oh yeah trump related things i got a good pick of that i'll make sure that i repeat that and put in the group but uh yeah it was they brought the energy for sure and you know it's very nostalgic yeah you know for us to be seen totally black block and i got to tell my students about black block and it's just i love the teaching moments where you get to tell them something that they know nothing about Right. It was also interesting to see my student kind of process the march that he was seeing and the assumptions that he had about marches that came mm-hmm. from the media and who right. knows, you know. And I know that our listeners want to engage in a larger discussion about especially the women's march and some of the problematic mm-hmm. aspects. Because we have this amazing interview with David this week, we won't have time to unpack it fully, but I think next week we can definitely devote some time to a larger discussion. So just to segue, I think the people who are ruining the dinner party are the organizers of the Women's March in some con- some cities. Yeah. And we will definitely unpack that. But for now, if you're interested in some of the critiques that we're resonating with, you can check out the Facebook community because a few people posted some really great articles that I think represent our critiques, but, you know, a little bit more nuanced to some of the things that we're sharing today. I do want to say that the numbers of people that came out was definitely unprecedented. I mean, in my view, Rachel, you know, usually when there's massive marches, and we haven't seen these numbers since the Iraq war. Not even that. I mean, that didn't even get the number of people, but that was the next most recent mass march. I mean, in terms of like, besides like the typical hundred or thousand, you know, these like mega marches, it's not, it is totally rare for organizers to underestimate to this degree. I haven't, I haven't seen that before where multiple cities were totally blown away by the, the outpouring of people coming. And it'll be interesting to see over the next week, some of the feminist, you know, philosophizing about why that, was totally totally for any critique we want to engage in um about the organizers what we can't argue against is like that it's an amazingly powerful thing to have mobilized such a mass mass group of people because that is the thing from movements that's missing usually on the left is is the numbers right we have the we have the good politics we have you know the nuanced conversations about how to move things forward you know with much debate, but we don't have the numbers. And so I think what I think the 
the problem though is that when I say the left, like calling the women's march like the left is generous. Anyway, this is this is a conversation for another time um, because we have this great interview that I want to listen to between you and David. But do visit our Facebook group, so uh, the community page rather than the the just. Uh, podcast page for some more discussion about that if you're interested in. We're obviously not trying to shit on people who attended the march. I obviously attended the march. I thought it was incredibly powerful, but um, I think it'll be interesting to have conversations about just actions and mobilization moving forward, which I would love to get into a discussion about in a future episode. And I know we also had specifically a request for violent versus nonviolent tactics. And so it would be really cool to have an episode just on sort of protests, black bloc, mobilizations, etc. Yeah, that's yeah. great. And I know we both have lots of things to share about all of those topics. So yeah, yep. So We'll hook y'all up next week. We will put yep. together. I think we just figured out what we're going to talk about next week. So for so for now, let us transition into our interview with uh, David. By our, I mean the the interview I had with him. He is the co-owner of Your Yoga, which is a studio in Minneapolis, Minnesota. And I have known him for many years. Your Yoga is the studio that I started going to regularly. It's a community that I'm a part of. And the reason why we wanted to bring David on to the show is because he's been doing some really interesting work around social justice and yoga, which is something that we talked about in an early episode as something severely missing from the yoga movement in Western countries. And so him and his studio are really pushing back against some of the stereotypes of Western yoga and really bringing that counterculture social justice aspect back into yoga at the at the local level. And so we talk about that, but then also he's been doing some really interesting work with police. And I think it's important for us to hear from him about why he chose to work with the police instead of saying F the police and we're not working with you. And when I heard about him doing this, it really lit a light bulb about what compassion means. And Mm -hmm. if we are compassionate people concerned about all human beings, that technically includes the police. And I know Rachel and I have, it's a struggle that we have in terms of applying our politics and values to the core of working with police. Like Rachel, your dissertation, the last chapter was grappling with the power of a union, but when the power of the union is applied to the police force as a union force, what do we do with that? Yeah, my argument was literally like to say FTP and not unionized police officers, so which is not super compassionate. So yeah, yeah, I'm I'm excited to hear from David and and think through that more. Yeah, so we will hear from David and then we will do um, what we're referring to as a debrief. Um, So stick around after what we will, um, especially hear from Rachel since she wasn't uh, in the room with us during our discussion. Here's the cat. Hi, Chief. Your cat's name is Chief? Well, the Chief. Oh, the Chief. I'm sorry. Yes. We often have cats visit our podcast as well. Oh, good. Between, Rachel only has one cat, but now I have three because we're fostering one. Uh, So there's up to four cats that can make appearances. So this is really just traditional. Yeah, actually, yes. I was, I'm glad that the Chief joined us. listeners like a little recap of kind of who you are and how you got into yoga and your mm-hmm. yoga story people always ask me my bike story so I'm <laughs> I'm asking you your yoga story sure yeah I mean so I guess I'm probably here on the podcast because 
for the last couple of years at least, you know, I've been really directly engaged in yoga as a foundation for um, social justice and, and activism. Um, but if you sort of go way back, um, you know, I originally got into yoga when I was a teenager because I had this amazing uh, martial arts instructor, actually, whose name was Crow, which is just a pretty badass name, mm -hmm. and it was his real name. Um, and he taught us all kinds of stuff, among which was this sort of warm-up routine and meditation. And we did it every single week or twice a week at the start of each session. And then he moved away, and after he moved away, I stopped doing all the other stuff, but I kept on doing this warm-up and meditation. You know, not quite every day, but, but every week. And for, for probably seven years. And then, fast forward, when I was in grad school in New York, and I finally decided, you know, I should really probably try this yoga stuff everyone keeps talking about. And I did, and they started doing this warm-up routine thing, and they didn't actually do the meditation, but as I learned more, I found that, oh, wow, so this stuff he taught us was actually yoga. So it was kind of neat because, um, you know, I'd been... I actually had this very individual personal practice um, and then almost had to sort of learn about yoga and all of its institutions and, and history and so on, um, having already been practicing for years. Uh, I would say, though, that probably, you know, what directly led to everything we're doing today at Your Yoga was in New York. Um, when the first yoga studio I really, you know, got into had just opened, it was called Yoga to the People. Mm -hmm. And um, it was all donation-based, and the whole vision really really was to bring yoga to, to um, as many people as possible because of how empowering it can be. And, um, you know, that really set the tone for both Megan, my partner, and myself for, you know, really everything that we've, we've strived to do now in the last six years that we've owned our own studios in Minneapolis. So can you talk to me a little bit about kind of your approach to yoga? Because it is different and it's, it's I say casual, but it's, um, what's your style all about? Yeah, so here's the thing, which, you know, you and your listeners, I mean, you're a, a community who think about these sorts of questions a lot. So, mm -hmm. you know, I apologize for sort of um, bumbling through something that you all are probably, you know, really informed about. But I, I always personally think it's important to differentiate between you know, let's just say, uh, I'll just use the word oppression, but like internalized oppression and then external oppression. And when I say external oppression, I would mean just literally things like being denied access to various opportunities, right? I would, uh, you know, unjust economic hardships and all of these things that are, you know, really bread and butter for, for you guys who are working to, you know, redress some of these inequalities. And then the internalized side of oppression is the way in which, um, you know, we tend to, well, internalize messages about who we are and what that means. So that, for example, you know, I remember growing up in, in the northeast of England, which was a very, you know, very economically depressed region. And in the 80s, Thatcher closed all the mines. And all of a sudden, this community, which was based on the mining economy, right, was in like a really um, terrible situation. And I always remembered that anyone who sort of really tried to strike it out and like, pull themselves up by the bootstraps was accused of getting ideas above their station mm -hmm. and that always stuck with me because i was like hang on a second like how have we somehow accepted this idea that we have a station that is down here and like when one of our own is trying to do something different like we're the ones who tell them stop doing that mm -hmm. so that clearly says something's got into our own minds that is is you know really holding us back and limiting us so yoga has long known about that second part 
and I would say even in a corporate yoga setting, often they're actually not too bad at dealing with that in a certain way. But, but if you think about it for a second, who are the people who are able to show up to that class? Well, they have free time, which, you know, for the most part implies they're probably not working three jobs to raise a child as a single parent, for example. And, you know, I don't mean to say this is always the case that, you know, everyone has the life of luxury who's going to a corporate yoga studio, but it tends to imply mm -hmm. they have some free time and they have some money available to them. So what are you doing? Well, you as long as you don't take a look at the external oppression factors, you're reinforcing this two-tiered system. You're saying, hey, as long as you already have some income and some leisure time, you can come to our yoga studio and now gain this all this internal freedom from the forces that you know are going on in your own mind. But if you can't afford to come here or you don't have the time to come here, good luck to you. So so that's why number one, it was just always so important to us to to try to price this in a way that would make it available to more people, to have donation-based classes mm -hmm. where possible so it doesn't matter what you um, are able to pay, even if it's nothing. But then also we found that wasn't enough. So we actually found that, I mean, for example, like early on we got an email from someone saying, hey, I just noticed that like 90% of people in all your classes are white people. And I said, yeah, that's true, and, and I really appreciate the input. I mean, bear in mind, like, that's sort of the case at yoga studios everywhere and we are really trying to reach out and to be inclusive but then you sort of think through it and it's like okay great so maybe we do some outreach work and maybe some people come in but but they come in and maybe have the same impression that you had that like oh great here's like a environment for like rich skinny white girls I, I think you were saying so is that really an environment that's actually broadcasting inclusivity or is it more like oh we have our community and now we want to reach out to your community because that makes us look good or feel good or something right and so so then two other things have to shift you know one is that the actual space itself has to be a space such that when people come in it's not just a conventional relatively well-off white space that's making accommodations, but it's actually a space that's built from the ground up by a diverse community of people and is therefore just naturally comfortable space for a diverse group of people to be in. And then last of all, I think, is the fact that, you know, you also have to get outside of the studio itself and go into communities and provide opportunities for people on their own terms, you know, because at the end of the day, you can do all the wonderful marketing you want and make a wonderful space. But again, the single mother who has three jobs trying to raise a kid, like how the heck is she supposed to come into yoga? And so that's why we did the nonprofit as well, access your yoga mm -hmm. to actually, you know, get out and do that in the world. So, so I think all these things are sort of foundational to the approach, even though sometimes that just comes across as like us being casual. But it's interesting how that casual attitude and a drop of a slang word or a reference mm -hmm. to pop culture can really like light up some people's eyes in right. which they feel like the space isn't for them, mm. you know? And I think that's part of like part of the reason why I like your yoga so much is that it is so approachable. And then another thing I just wanted to riff off of, and then we can talk about some of your more direct uh political work there's this concept called retrofitting equity have you ever heard of that uh explain to me it's just this kind of, well they use it in the bike advocacy world to say you know a lot of bike advocacy is built around white middle class people and now the bike organizations are kind of getting the hint that they're not equitable they're trying to fit they're trying to retrofit equity into their framework and it sounds very similar to what 
the your yoga approaches or your personal approach in terms of creating an inclusive space to begin with Mm -hmm. instead of trying to like it's like putting a square in a circle like it's just not going to work you know so it seems similar like you want it you're trying to avoid retrofitting equity very much so i mean didn't you write a book about that yeah kind of yeah um absolutely i mean but again that is there's two reasons for that within the yoga world and i'm not sure if this is the same in, in the cycling world but in the yoga world partly it's the power structures and social structures that are set up around the yoga community mm-hmm. in the sense that you know often most of the stakeholders are you know relatively homogenous let's say mm-hmm. a few years ago i wrote a blog post about like it's kind of weird that that you know 85 percent of people in yoga classes are women but then if you go up to the teachers like men are more represented. And then if you go to the owners, yeah. it's like majority male, right? Something's kind of screwy about that, right? So um, so part, partly it's that. And so then it's really difficult if you're like, hey, we've, we are the people who are the stakeholders. Now what can we do to be more inclusive? Like, it's just tough. So that's part of it. You know, and then often where have you opened your yoga studio? You've opened your yoga studio often in a more affluent, you know, area with a certain demographic and now what you want other people to travel to you like that doesn't necessarily work that way but then also i think and this may be more unique to the yoga world is it's embedded in the philosophy itself often that let's say that that liberation or enlightenment or whatever you want to call it is a solo journey and as a consequence this sort of feeds into how things are done in the way that it's like, okay, well, almost like it's sort of every person to themselves. So we'll help to try to, you know, make it easier for you to get in on this whole thing, but then it's up to you. Maybe because of the emphasis people have placed on individual spiritual journey outside of the social context around that journey that even often makes that journey possible in the first place, Mm -hmm. that also has led to this kind of retrofitting approach rather than kind of rethinking from the ground up of how everything's built. And it seems like with the that ownership structure that you noticed, that it's very much individualistic about who's climbing up the ladder and that it doesn't allow for people to bring each other up. Right. You know? You know what that's called? The patriarchy. Have you ever heard of that, David? <laughs> I'm a product of it, so. (laughs) So with the time we have left, I do want to hear a lot about your work with the police. And Rachel and I are particularly interested in it because we're definitely like the F the police kind of people and have no interest in in, in interacting with them and you have taken a different approach and when I heard about that at one of the Dancing with Compassion sessions I was like well isn't that the more compassionate way to go you know could you just talk like a little bit about why you chose to start working with the police how it's been what you would say to people who are just like whatever f the police yeah well let me start by saying I, I totally understand the f the police mindset I mean I'm no stranger to that. I totally get it. And since the police is essentially the you know coercive arm of the state, a lot of people, their 
primary interaction with the police is through being coerced by them or seeing other people be coerced by them and often seeing people who are disempowered by the state in so many ways being coerced by them. And so it's like almost at times seems how could you have any other attitude towards the police? You know, and there's the police as the coercive arm of the state and there's the police as a group of people who are doing a job and who are people. And I think those two realities coexist. And so what we decided to do was, okay, well, well, let's just spend some time being with the people who are police. And let's actually get a sense of, you know, what really is it like to be a person in this situation? And um, again, you and and your uh, listeners are just so well-versed and and every day thinking about the ways that different um, vectors of oppression intersect. And actually, you know, you go spend time with with a lot of police officers and and you can see folks who come from, you know, economically underprivileged backgrounds. And you can see folks who actually have not had an easy ride. And for them, you know, sometimes the police force offers a, a way to have, for example, you know, some moral certainty in a way, because, well, here's the law, right? You're there to enforce the law. Okay, great. Maybe if I was in an environment where there was always such ambiguity around right and wrong, maybe, then then this could be like something really just makes it clear for me. And I can feel like I'm of service to my community rather than, you know, at a loss. And in fact, my experience working with the, the police who, who every single one of the officers I've interacted with through the yoga program, you know, has, has really been... Um, I just had great interactions throughout. Um, I found that how they conceive of what they do in their work is as serving their communities. Um, Now, granted, that may not be the case for every single officer out there, but now think about it for a second. So especially in the United States where there's guns everywhere, you have guys and and you have people whose... job it is to go out armed on a daily basis into situations that are hostile and aggressive and potentially other people are armed but you actually don't know that is one of the most stressful jobs i can imagine and so here are people who really 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 need the kinds of resources and you know opportunities for inner peace that we are very happy to provide to you know rich middle class white people like these guys really need those Mm -hmm. just as people and doing their job, I mean, wouldn't you rather have p- police officers coming at their job from a more centered, grounded, you know, happy place even? So that was the whole intention. And, and it does fit into a broader program. You know, we, we're also going to try and get into the prison system. And we're going to try and get in this year with um, the school system to bring yoga to teachers as well. Mm. Where it's basically the folks who are like, on, in a way, on the front lines of... <laughs> that intersection between state and public, like how do we sort of serve them? Because they are in stressful jobs and they have such important jobs that make such a difference in the lives of so many others. So that kind of makes some sense. Mm -hmm. I would also say, you know, in the police system, I've come across really extraordinary individuals. Um, You know, the person who heads the fifth precinct, um, who's uh, Inspector Kathy Waite, you know, she's a woman who... um, I mean, she was instrumental in actually getting us in there to be able to do this. And, um, you know, she's really committed to 
her officers and to their sort of mental health and to their physical health and kind of I think her vision for for the precinct is one where it's like all right you you do go back to that maybe I mean historically right the word policeman means I mean the polis is the same as Minneapolis right or metropolis it means sort of I mean literally man of the city but person of the city guardian of the city so she kind of wants to go back, I think, I mean, I don't want to put words in her mouth, to like this vision of a group of officers who feel a sense of responsibility for their city and for their community. And that ain't going to happen from, you know, and again, I don't want to denigrate anyone's uh, protest, for example. I mean, everyone has a right to protest and, and um, you know, there's power to protest. However, if we just neglect the actual people who are police... And, and our only way of relating to them is an antagonistic one. I just don't see how that gets us forward. Although, okay, let me say this, though. If there are indeed like these sort of egregious cases of, you know, abuse of authority, abuse of power, right? Like those ones, I think, protest absolutely is like, you know, so necessary and warranted, Right. I'm saying from a sort of broader systemic perspective, like we got to be engaging in there as well in, in this kind of way. So I, ho I hope I haven't like, I really don't mean to come across as sort of, you know, criticizing anyone's, you know, protests or anyone's outrage because I get all of that. I really do. I'm just saying, and we can do this too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So what do you so do you go into the precinct and teach yoga classes? Yes, exactly. So every week we go in and um it's great actually. We do it right at the start of the of the night shift. And possibly we're going to start doing one in the morning as well for the people on the day shift. Um cuz you know the officers work long shifts and they sort of, you know, the night shift they're going overnight and there's a lot more well, I think there's significantly more violent crime in the evening and in the night than often during the day, but they all are exposed to that stuff. So we, right after roll call, we get to go in there into the precinct. They have a big room. The officers come out. We teach them half an hour of yoga. We do some physical stuff. We do some breath work and some kind of mental peace um, relaxation work. Then they get up, strap their gear back on, and then they go off onto, onto their shift. So every officer does it, or is it optional? Well, it's so it's kind of cool, actually. Basically, um, you know, I'm pretty sure that Inspector Waite told everyone they had to come at least once. <laughs> and uh, so everyone did come at least once. But what's been cool is that a lot of officers have kept coming, even though they don't have to anymore. So they're clearly perceiving a lot of benefit to it. That's excellent. Um, so Yeah, so I guess what is the reaction? Do you talk to the officers before or after class? We do, yeah. And they've been very grateful. They've been very grateful for the support. I think in part because, you know, maybe they were expecting, well, hang on a second, you know, these yoga people and, I mean, aren't they going to just have beards, wear sandals and eat granola and hate the police and, you know, um, all of which at times I do, you know, <laughs> although I shaved yesterday, so there's mm -hmm. no beard right now. But... Um, but I, I think they were taken aback almost that of with the genuine message of support that we had for them. Because when we go in there, I mean, look, we are there to support these people who are police officers and who, who do an important job. I mean, and I know yeah, I was listening to another podcast and, and that you, you did, and I know that um, plenty of people who listen to this 
probably feel like there's so much coercion and so much oppression in the system that we have that really they would almost just want to do away with so much of it. And and to them, you know, at the risk of, of sort of making myself unpopular, let me just ask this question. Okay, so go go to this new anarchy and this new sort of start from scratch. Okay. Now what what sorts of things do you start to build? What sorts of institutions or what sorts of ground rules do you start to introduce? And at some point pretty early on actually, I think you end up with a role in any sustainable social structure that actually, you know, forcibly kind of has to prevent people from doing things that actually undermine the whole system and the whole vision. Okay, now, absolutely, we can, like, have major issues with the way that's done in our system, but I'm saying in any system, I think, maybe something like that has to arise. So when I go in to work with the police, that's where I come from. It's like, you know, look, you guys are the people who protect us okay even if so many people feel like that's actually not how things are really set up in our system nonetheless that's what the police is supposed to be there for that's what these officers consider themselves to be doing and i do think in a great many cases that actually is what they're doing okay so man i feel so much gratitude for that you know i'm my wife is having our first baby in six weeks and i really appreciate that these officers you know do put their lives on the line to make the world a safer place for my kid to grow up in like they find that very moving so is that you know is that an available way for people to relate to these police officers as well as voicing their objection to many many features of what they perceive to be you know abuses of authority and power and maybe legitimately perceived to be Yep. But then to push back a little bit with your personal example, there's lots of parents who feel the exact opposite, that they're worried about bringing children into this world because they believe that because their kid's skin is a darker color, the police will be out for them. Mm -hmm. You know what I mean? And so like, although I feel like with this, this concept of being compassionate towards the police, like I'm so for it. And when you were explaining it the first time, I was like, yes, I totally get it. But then when I ha- when I listen to neighbors or my community members who like are so far away from even un- being compassionate for police, and I've been at that space so many times before too, because it's like, how can I be compassionate towards an organization that breeds the type of people that would just like shoot an African-American man because... They deem him to be a threat. In so many of these cases, these men end up not, and these women end up not being threats at all. Mm -hmm. It's just straight up racism. And I guess it doesn't really matter like what my end opinion is. I'm not, you know, my opinion doesn't rule the the world or anything, but Mm -hmm. it's, it's a very complicated issue. But I think what's, I think what's good, and this is something that Rachel and I have talked about a lot is, do you identify as like white? Yeah. I mean, my dad's Mexican, grew up, he was born in Mexico, raised in Mexico, um, and my mother's uh, Scottish. So in the northeast of England, I was considered uh, definitely, I mean, I don't know if you'd say non-white, but mm-hmm. uh, there's, there's, there was like three black people in the whole of my mm-hmm. area. Um, so people had that kind of like mild racism where they're not actively uh, really thinking about or but 
with respect to like uh, Indian immigrants, mm-hmm. of whom there were many, there was a lot of really overt active racism, and I often got lumped in with those guys. Especially my younger brother, actually, was quite a bit darker than me. So, so that was always interesting to sort of be like, well, hang on a second. I mean, we're I come over here and everyone's like, oh, there's a white guy. Mm-hmm. It didn't necessarily feel quite that straightforward growing up. Yeah. Um, well, I just I just ask because you know Rachel and I have been talking a lot about. Like, let's say you're perceived to be white in this country. The importance for us to be working with other white people in doing this work, you know, rather than an African-American man having to, like, work with a police officer, mm-hmm. you know, that it that tension would possibly exist. It's basically our job. So I'll just speak for white people. It's like it's our job to be doing some of this work. Does that make sense? The, I, the connection or? I understand what you're saying, I think. Okay. At the same time, you know, I definitely, I view a key part of the work I'm doing as actually trying to create opportunities for, you know, for example, people of color or just mm-hmm. anybody who's traditionally had their voice squashed mm-hmm. for my presence to actually be something that preserves their voice and prevents it from being squashed rather mm-hmm. than a replacement for it. And I, I know that's not what you're saying, but, but I, for example, you know, I would rather be standing side by side and amplifying the voice of someone mm-hmm. rather than necessarily, you know, trying to step into a situation, advocate on their behalf only. And, you know, I mean, for that matter, maybe just going back to the point you made before about mm-hmm. the sort of systemic racism that, that does bleed its way into the police force. There's no doubt in my mind that there are some, uh, you know, overtly racist police officers in, in this country. I actually don't know if the percentage would be any higher among police officers than among, you know, the right the general populace. I, don't, I mean, I don't know how you'd even study that because it's pretty yeah. hard to do. However, you know, when, when I see a lot of these really just terrible, tragic, awful shootings of, you know, often of black men, you know, what I see there is is a little more complicated than just there being some racist police officer with a gun. And yeah, I mean, again, I hate to sort of become this like didactic dude lecturing to people who already know all about this, but I do feel it's important for me to at least make an attempt to explain something that I think I mm-hmm. perceive, which is that in a high pressure situation, people rely on these heuristics. And when I see that like the, that a lot of officers in a stressful situation would fall back on the heuristic, here's a person of color, that means they're more likely to be armed and dangerous. What I see is like, how the heck did we manage to create a situation or a system where that heuristic ends up being one that gets used in that situation. And I say, okay, well, look, people who, there's lots of people who would say, well, you know what, actually there's this correlation and, you know, people of color are more likely to be armed and dangerous. You say, okay, well, can we look a little deeper, even if that's true? Is the correlation not actually between like poverty and crime rather than race and crime? Okay, so essentially we're saying that even if uh, you know there there is a correlation there, that actually the underlying factor is um, the fact that we've really screwed over people of color to mean that they're often in really tough economic situations, and so crime is more prevalent among their communities. So when an officer goes in, is trying to deal with a situation, they're like, "Hang on, I mean, they're not even like hang on because it happens in the <laughs> blink of an eye, right? Mm-hmm. I'm now under threat. My heart rate is elevated, right?" 
something's more likely to go wrong. So in other words, we got to be working to fix that mess, right? And at the same time, we can have, I think, compassion for the officers who are going into these really threatening situations in a system that's really screwed over people of color. Again, I think the the overall point of you working with police officers is instead of isolating them and bringing it back to something that you said at the beginning of our talk about, you know, when we feel anxious and stressed and unsure, we tend to isolate ourselves. Right. And so that includes the police officers. Yes. We're fighting over here and then they're over there saying whatever, you know, but we never have a conversation with each other. Right. Within like radical leftist activism, th- the normal answer now is like, under no circumstances are we going to talk or work with the police, mm-hmm. you know? And I bring up the being white because I feel like if you all don't want to do that, that's fine. But like, let me use my white privilege and the safety that I have being a white woman to like go talk with these police officers, mm-hmm. officers and see if they'll talk to me, right. you know, where other people, I can understand why, because they go through their brain and they can't find one positive experience they've had with a police officer their whole lives. Mm-hmm. Where I've had, you know, I've had plenty. I guess, you know, it's just complicated and well this i think is where the yoga can provide a wedge into that because ultimately you know if you're a person who has had some good interactions with officers where you've been made to feel safer by their presence you know that's going to influence how you what you consider as being a range of possibilities for engagement with the police versus if you've only ever had negative experiences why would you be open to an alternative approach. But what the yoga helps us do when it, you know, when it's sort of actually directly tied to some of these questions is it enables us to see the working of our own minds. And it actually enables us to slow down and see like, oh, you know what? I guess maybe I am being really shut out to the possibility of this police officer's humanity. You know, and why am I shut out to that? Oh, it's because this, this, this. No, actually... It's because of maybe something in my own experience and how that actually impacted my mind and my personality and my beliefs and all these things. So when you start to see that mechanism, just the awareness of that, and I don't just mean an intellectual abstracted awareness, but like a real embodied experiential awareness of that actually loosens its grip a little bit. So, so that the anger starts to turn into passion, you know, and so that the ferocity doesn't go away. Mm-hmm. Because I think sometimes people are afraid to lose their ferocity because they think if I'm not ferocious, you know, A, that's like morally wrong to not be outraged and B, mm-hmm. like we're just going to be co-opted and we're not going to be effective, right? But like really in other areas of your life, sometimes anger made you more effective, but I would say probably most of the time it was your other abilities and your other incredible mm-hmm. aspects of what you got going for you that made you effective, Right. So keep the passion. So, so that's sort of, I think, maybe where the yoga can help here. Here's a suggestion, I don't know, but in almost every meeting that I've ever been in outside of our studio where people have been talking about these issues, nothing is ever really done at the start to create a certain environment and space for people. And maybe you all are doing much more sophisticated things than that, but in my experience, people come in, they're like, all right, here's an agenda, here are the things we're going to discuss, let's talk versus and and ps Femi really taught me the value of this like he he's so good at this and basically i remember first dancing with compassion he did on his own even before that actually this was way before dancing with compassion he did a thing invited a lot of teacher trainees and stuff to his house and, and held kind of an evening 
first thing he did, he just quieted us down. We took a few moments, we closed our eyes, and he just led us through like some conscious breathing and a couple of introspective things. And it was amazing. And the whole space shifted. And now people were coming from that grounded, centered place. And I think outcomes, you get different outcomes from doing that. So I don't know the degree to which that's possible for you, for example, to introduce into the circles that you're Mm -hmm. working in. I think it makes such a difference. Even just one deep breath Mm -hmm. together. Anything you wanted to share that you didn't get a chance to share so far today? I mean, maybe I, I could just sort of say that I have such a, I'm like continually blown away by looking at the groups of people who are like so devoted to the liberation, the empowerment, the upliftment of of their fellow human beings. And the social justice movement in Minneapolis is incredible. There's just so many people doing amazing things. And I see a real opportunity for yoga practices and for mindfulness practices to really support that great work that's already being being done and to make it even more effective. And doing that also really does challenge certain assumptions that I think are like deeply embedded in the social justice movement. So I would love to see over the coming months and years a kind of greater and greater interface between those two worlds. Right, the one, It's not going to be some superficial kind of trivial thing. Like I really do think we have something that we can contribute that's like going to really be amazing. you know. And so I guess that would be my message is that I'm really glad you invited me on this because I wanted to hopefully build some bridges there mm-hmm. on top of the bridges we're already building. I really like doing the Wayne's World thing. Thank you. Even though it's totally unnecessary. I feel like it is I hope, necessary. Can I- it's so necessary, and also, like, if people are confused when we do, like, the Wayne's World countdown or the or the Wayne's World noises, and you don't know what that is, like, everybody needs to see Wayne's World. Like, I think we, we have a generation of listeners that, like, weren't alive when that was out. So, like, please have a Wayne's World party. Do you smell bacon? <laughs> I certainly do smell a pork product of some kind. I have to give cred to my partner who uh, who said that at the march yesterday. So um, <laughs> shout out Logan, though. Yeah. Oh my god. Anyway, beautiful. Anyway, back to this interview, this great interview that you had with David. Uh, I really enjoyed listening to that, and thanks so much, David, uh, for giving your time to to talk to Melody about about those issues. I have so much to say. Can I just jump right in? Go do it. I mean, I'm going to specifically focus on the discussion about the police because I thought so much of what he said about a ton of stuff was great, but I'm going to talk about the police. So definitely, I mean, I definitely grapple as as a yogi and as an activist sort of, and as a Buddhist or somebody at least who's sort of interested in Buddhism in a lot uh, of the line between sort of, you know, destroy what destroys you, fuck the police, hateful, like anti-capitalist anger as a way, as a method of resistance versus we are literally all one compassion, et cetera. It's a super big struggle. I want, I wanted to start by, I, as, as I often do, I turn to the Black Panthers when I like, don't know what to do <laughs> with in, yes. in, in, in terms of resistance. So there's this Stokely Carmichael quote that I believe it or not, I think actually kind of bolsters David's approach to working with the police. 
So I'm, I'm going to read it. It's, it's a little bit long, but I think it's worth it. So we'll post a link to it so folks can have it in text. But so Stokely Carmichael, who is a Black Panther, um, uh, writes, white liberals are always saying, what can we do? I mean, they're always coming to black people. They're always coming to help black people. I thought of an analogy. If you were walking down the street and a man had a gun on another man, let's say both of them were white and you had to help somebody, whom would you help? It's obvious to me that if I were walking down the street and a man had a gun on another man and I was going to help, I'd help the man who didn't have the gun if the man who had the gun was just pulling the gun on the other man for no apparent reason, if he was just going to rob him or shoot him because he didn't like him. The only way I could help is either to get a gun and shoot the man with the gun or take the gun away from him. Join the fellow who doesn't have a gun and both of us gang up on the man with the gun. But white liberals never do that. When the man has the gun, they walk around him and they come to the victim and they say, let me help you. And what they mean is help you adjust to the situation with the man who has the gun on you. If indeed white liberals are going to help, their only job is to get the gun from the man and talk to him because he is a sick man. The black man is not the sick man. It is the white man who is sick. He's the one who picked up the gun first. And end quote. As I was listening to the interview with David, that quote came back to my mind because I do. And you mentioned this, Mal, about like white people talking to other white people. Mm-hmm. And obviously not all cops are white, obviously, but, you know, taking this this sort of race to a race place. Mm-hmm. Um, I do think it's important to try to sort of heal the oppressor, right? Sort of comes back to like Paulo Freire's idea. Paulo Freire is a liberation theorist um, who talks about that the oppressor is also wounded in the act of oppression. So it's not just the victim who's harmed, but the oppressor is also harmed by doing violence onto another person being. You know, I that resonates with me and I and I get that. And I do think that we need to think about how to address oppressors, and I would consider the police as the arm of the state, as David mentions, uh, as oppressors. And that's that's where I would push back. And I know you did in the interview as well, that it's so hard to understand the police as protectors or safe entities, because they cause they cause so much harm to so many communities. So yeah, so that that I, I see the value in the work that David's doing. And it also reminds me of this idea of transformative justice and um, transformative justice acknowledges, uh, again, the the harm that causes people to do harm. So I was first introduced to transformative justice through activist transformative justice communities that tried to address sexual assault in activist communities. So why do oftentimes male, you know, male radicals, male leftists, male activists still continually cause harm through sexual assault or rape or et cetera. And this transformative justice community that I sort of first got introduced to it through would say, you know, rather than sort of excommunicating the activist, rather than shunning him, isolating him, you know, telling everybody to never, you know, never communicate with this person again, why don't we look at the root cause of that violence, which is the patriarchy, right? That 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 is sort of the root of sexual violence. Look at those structural causes and try to heal those causes, like try to create transformation in that person. And obviously, if sexual assaulters are not accountable to their to the harm that they've done and don't have any uh, interest in transforming, then that doesn't then transformative justice doesn't work. And so I understand why people excommunicate people sort of if that process doesn't work. But I do think that first step is so fucking important, because if we don't address the harm uh, in perpetrators, 
then these cycles just continue. And obviously if I'm going to do so much work in jails where, you know, I never think about the crime that the inmates that I work with do, like, that's not what I think about. I think about them as people. And that's what David is suggesting. Like, well, let's think about these cops as like working class people who are trying to, you know, get, get through life like everybody else. So if I'm willing to like, sort of not think about the harm that may or may not have been caused by the men that I'm working with in prisons and jails, could I do the same thing for cops? It feels complicated because one one entity is the arm of the state and one entity is the victim of the state, but I but I get it. So I, I have I have more to say, but that's sort of my first thoughts. Do you have any reactions to that, Mel? I was just thinking last night when I went to Target, I actually said hello to the police officer that was, <laughs> that was <laughs> yeah. posted up. I mean, he was brown, you know? Yeah. I just wanted yep. to know what it, it felt like, you know? <laughs> to be nice to a cop. <laughs> yeah. I did want to ask him why his car was running outside, because I can't stand that when police officers just run their car yeah. outside. But, well, you know, yeah. first step was to say hi. Uh, <laughs> right. So, you know, I'm I'm trying out this compassion thing. I was inspired by David, and I did say hello to a police yeah. officer. <laughs> I feel that way. Like, I'll often... Boston is such a shit show and there's like construction and terrible driving all the time. So oftentimes there's cops directing traffic because there's just roadblocks like everywhere. Mm -hmm. And I'm always like so thankful to the like the dude who's standing in the street and like in the cold and like literally waving traffic. And I'll often like smile and wave and I'll be like, this is the only job a cop should have. Thank you for directing traffic. Like I'll say that out loud and I'll be like, thank you for directing traffic. No, thank you for all the other shit that you do to like harm people. Um, so I feel compassionate towards traffic direction. That's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing you say that because I was, uh, to make a long story short, I was in a space in which I had to talk about my positive and negative uh, experiences I've had with police officers. Uh-huh. And, and the positive one I brought out was traffic, traffic. control because yeah. <laughs> they're also really nice to bicyclists and they let us, yeah. if it's, you know, games letting out or something downtown, right. they will let us, you know, not Go. follow yeah, like yep. not follow the That's traffic cool. laws. They're really nice. Right. I'm like, yeah. dude, could you like just be like this all the time? Like just right. super nice and right. No, yeah, then totally. Once we go away, you chase around to all the black people because you think they're in gangs. Right. So right. Yeah. Anyways. Yeah. Okay. So what else? You yeah. Got? What else? So 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 all of that is to say, I think my summary of that is that I really see both yogic Buddha or like I see yogic Buddhist loving hippy dippy potential as well as like also sort of like legit political potential in addressing and practicing healing of oppressors. Right. Um, my sort of next, the sort of question though, that I think I come to is last week I mentioned an article by Dean Spade that I was, that was, that felt really helpful to me. And I want to come back to his, his idea of are the reforms we practice going to, most reform measures mitigate harm in the moment. So, um, for example, creating gender neutral, uh, spaces in prisons for trans prisoners potentially like can mitigate the harm that trans and and non-binary, uh, inmates experience in prison. The question is, does that short-term harm reduction bolster the oppressive system or help dismantle the oppressive system? In the case of gender neutral prisons, there is a huge group of people that are saying, fuck that measure. That's giving more money to the PIC. Why would we fucking do that? 
the same thing has come up with uh, body cameras on for police officers, right? Why are you going to give an, a giant chunk of money to cops so that they can have cameras that they will A, not wear, or B, they'll wear, and they'll literally record them murdering a black man, and it will not fucking matter because we literally have footage of cops murdering black men, and it doesn't fucking matter. So why are we going to like give a sh- ton of money and equipment to this to this organization for a reform that ultimately does not does not help dismantle that oppression. So that's my question with yoga. Does does this yoga measure bolster the police force or is this harm reduction a way to dismantle it? And I think you can make arguments for both. Like for me, like my I, and I think this might differ with from David, who I think felt hopeful about the possibility of and I think it was Another thing I had about his his comments was the idea that if we started from scratch, like anarchist society, there are tons of theorizing about like community care. Some people would call it community policing, but like community support, basically, that would not require police. Right. That would actually not you wouldn't require that. But so that so that's sort of aside. Um, I think my end goal of a yoga program in the police force would be that it would get police officers to realize that they do not want to have the job that is an arm of the state and leave the police force. (laughs) The other end goal of that, I think, is a reform measure that would say we just need to have kinder, gentler police officers. And that becomes the question of like, what do we think about the, the cops? And, you know, I know we have listeners that are not as far left as we are. And the idea of like dismantling and not having police sounds terrifying. But I just think it's so important to go back to your point about the people in your neighborhood who for whom police are not helpers. They're not people who keep you safe. They're people who scare the shit out of you. When you have an entire race of people who have talks with their children about how to stay safe from the police, that's a fucking problem. Like, that's a huge fucking problem. And they are no longer an entity that feel that I feel like keeps you safe. So can the yoga make it, you know, does, can yoga with police officers mean that that those conversations don't have to happen? I don't know. Um, or could the yoga maybe make cops be like, fuck this, I'm going to join the revolution instead. Like, I don't know. But everybody exists within capitalism and cops often do the jobs because they need jobs, just like people in the military. So if you want to understand police is just, you know, a few bad apples, the bad apples right. are collecting themselves up on the North side. Um, and then it's, you know, downtown is where some of these uh, shootouts are happening now. And so those specific police need to be tapped into as well. But then what happens if they're resistive and it's just another layer of, of problem Ab- with accessing absolutely. these people. Yeah. And I think to, for, for folks who sort of haven't, heard the sort of arguments about the few bad apples and anal- now like analogy that this goes back to it. Like there's, I agree with David that these are human beings, oftentimes working class people, including people of color who can, who are good human beings who deserve compassion as individuals. We're not talking about individuals though. When we're talking, when we say fuck the police, we don't mean fuck individuals. We mean fuck the arm of the state that practices law and order for those of you who were paying attention to the website changes on whitehouse.gov, like there's an entire section about protecting our armed forces and no longer tolerating dissent, really. I mean, there's, it was basically like, we need to, this administration supports our men in blue and we'll do everything in our power to squash dissent that could potentially, you know, resist 
our officers. So this like law and order rhetoric demonstrates very overtly in ways that I think Democratic Democrat administrations do not that the police are designed to maintain the status quo as an entity. And when the status quo is harmful to large numbers of people, marginalized minority people, that we need to to think about that structure. Every cop in the U.S. could be anti-racist, kind, loving person. And I still don't think that um, that would mean the police were not an institution that still needed to be interrogated as a problem. So, And I, w- I would add, too, I don't think that David really kind of talked the listeners through the possible impact of doing yoga with police. But I think if I could kind of uh, expand on his thoughts in terms of, Mm -hmm. and this is in reference to whether it's bolstering the status quo or not. And if we see the Mm -hmm. status quo is maintaining the police force, then yes. Right. But the way that it resists the status quo is by turning these police officers who, you know, at a split second seem to have to make a decision about whether, you know, to use their weapon on somebody, Mm -hmm. which, but I think the point is then if you become more mindful and you have deep breathing exercises that when you get Mm -hmm. into your cop car, if you practice yoga long enough, as you know, you start to use those tools without even thinking. And so subconsciously your deep breathing or taking a moment to collect yourselves um, will be integrated into your everyday. Um, and I, you yeah. know, we both know that, that it just happens if you practice it long enough, right. um, which is one of the core benefits, I think, for me and, men- and mental health, that my anger and my outbursts have really dropped um, mm-hmm. the more I do yoga because you just find that space in your head to just chill out. And so I think the point is the yoga will hopefully calm the officers down and when they have right. to make those whatever you call it when you just like a tiny bit of your brain is responding that there's mm-hmm. mindfulness now embedded into that and that they can mm-hmm. take a moment mm-hmm. or that like a deep breath will reset them in a way that it didn't before yeah i mean that's i think that's obviously a goal i don't know enough about neurology to know if like an entire lifetime of being taught racism when you see a black man as a threat or being in a situation where you're where you perceive that you might that your life might be in danger. I'm not sure if mindfulness works in those situations. Like I don't no, I don't know. But <laughs> like I'm if also... I if I thought that I was about to get shot, I don't know if my mindfulness would kick in. And uh, and that goes back honestly like I think I'm saying something sort of compassionate about co- like you know, it's fucking racist often most of the time are cops in those situations. I don't know. I don't know the answer. I mean, well, I I would have this question for David in in terms of like what they're saying during the yoga class too, because mm -hmm. at your yoga, they um, often talk to you and like, you know, philosophize and say something. And so maybe they're saying things too that are making them think through. Uh, And there's ways that you can get at it. Uh, And so that might be part of the equation as well as what they're saying Mm -hmm. during the class, because they never just say the positions to go into. They're always interspersing like hippy dippy woo woo stuff that, you know, some days I'm like, oh, Oh, I wish I could do that at my corporate yoga studio. Yeah. Sometimes I'm just like, oh hippie you know? <laughs> it's just like fine but other days I'm like yes you are right I am like you know one with humans <laughs> just... that's funny so yeah yeah I will say this and I think this also I mean this is I, I he didn't 
I don't think explicitly say this, but I'm assuming this is all volunteer based, right? Like there's no money exchange. I, I doubt. There's, yeah. I mean, yeah. And even if there is, I mean, that's not, I guess it's not that big no, of a deal, but just no the way they would take money. I, I, yeah. Yeah. So, so, you know, I mean, again, and I, I said this when I was thinking about when I was talking last week, I think about going into jails, like some people could argue that I'm doing the same shit by like, as my practice of reform, helping, helping make jail a nicer place for inmates and therefore bolstering the system. Mm. I mean, I think, and I think my rationalization was like, well, it's not like I'm giving money to anybody to do this. And that's where, you know, power lies. So I would, I think Bottom line, I un- I recognize David's work as harm reduction that isn't bolstering the the oppressive arm of the of the state of the police force, and I see the value in that. If it turned into this like national campaign, like nobody ever has to like resist the police because we have yoga and police in police forces, like that would obviously be a problem. I don't see that happening, so this doesn't seem like this. This is nothing that I would, after hearing David's interview, I wasn't like, oh my gosh, you shouldn't be doing this. I thought the opposite. I mm-hmm. mean, he mm-hmm. he sold me on the value of it. I just think like most things, it's like both and we have like, it's cool to be doing this work. We just have to continue to have like critical conversations that make pressure for structural changes. In the era that we are in now, I see all of the activists as pieces of a vegan pizza or like a puzzle in that it takes all kinds. And so as you know, when David does his yoga stuff, I'll do my kind of work with, you know, the police or, you know, and it, it it's all part of like one program or one movement to disrupt the status quo, but we're all trying it differently. And as long as it's not blanket support like the Trump administration of like law enforcement, rah, 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 blue lives matter. It's just one tactic. I mean, we got to try a diversity of tactics and no organization can try them all. And so it, I think that's also important. So absolutely agreed. Agreed. Well, thanks David. If if you're listening to the recap uh, for the interview and Mel, thanks for sitting down with them. Gladly. Um, and getting he's super smart. He's so smart. Like, yeah, he's, he seems like it. Um, <laughs> but he's, he's a like grad a school dude. guy. So there's, well, no, yeah. I mean, grad school, are, that's dumb. That is very like elitist of me to say. Um, but I think he's naturally a philosopher, you know? Right. But I think, right. Yeah. You know, grad school training, it just kind of, it teaches you how to just create really nuanced, interesting arguments and. Totally. And um, you don't need grad school to have that but no. grad school helps helps make that your sort of go-to <laughs> approach to things so yeah. yeah no he's he's uh he's great speaking of yoga i actually have to go teach a class soon so um for i mean we can wrap up with rwls but my rwls is really like i'm reading watching and listening to things about the marches and the inauguration basically so that's my summary okay i am reading racism without racists which is a book um i'm watching can i just get we can link it link the book oh yeah yeah i just watched it in figures yesterday how was it? Awesome. Yeah. It's really cool. good. Everybody cool. should go see it. it. Yeah. And good. then it uh, segregation issues and, you know, yep. uh, women who were, black women who were uh, ignored, even though they were yeah. powerful mathematicians during the NASA space war. Yeah. Okay. Space race. And then listening to the singer of Drive-By Truckers has a solo album and it's really cool. good. I, I'm sure it's old, cool. but my partner just keeps playing it and it's... Uh, yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, I always I'm more in the mood for that stuff in the fall and the summer, but I support you listening to it in any season you want. I don't think I actually have a choice. It's just playing <laughs> yeah. a CD player and then, it's like, oh, you oh. guys and your CD player. <laughs> <laughs> 
<laughs> did you get my um? Did you see my video about Pandora? No, I where did I sent you, did you a video yesterday? Oh, I miss. I'll have to look in my text. I'm gonna I, put the. I'm gonna put the. I'm gonna splice in the audio like right now to the podcast. Hey Robert. What up? Where can we stream POS's new album? Super old school Pandora. Ah, Pandora for the win. All right. We done? Um, we're done. WTF. Okay. <clears throat> Power. Goodbye. Bye.